our third session, and I said there were going to be three. I think I'm going to do four. <laughs> sorry, about, sorry about the misleading, but I've, there's so many things that need to be addressed in this text. This is our third session now, and the question I want to ask is, how is Jesus motivating our behavior in this text? How, how do the promises of blessing and the warnings of woes, how do they work in our heart to get us to do the right thing in the right way? So, Father, as we ponder uh, this passage and ask your way, Jesus' way of motivating us, help us not to rule out things that he clearly does not rule out, but includes, and help us not to include things that he wants us to rule out, but to to be moved by the things he wants to be moved by, to believe what he wants us to believe. I pray this in, in Jesus' great name. Amen. He lifted up his eyes on his disciples and said, Blessed are you who are poor. So you are my disciples, and I'm talking to you, and I'm pronouncing a blessing on my disciples who happen to be poor. For, and here comes an incentive, yours is the kingdom of heaven. We'll come back to that. Blessed are you who are hungry now. If you, you're my disciples, you happen to be hungry, blessed are you, because you shall be satisfied as, as opposed to now. You're not being satisfied, but hungry. Blessed are you who weep now. Incentive for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy because, look, your reward is great in heaven. Great, great reward in heaven. So, so far, I would say, is there an argument, is there incentive, is there a motivation here based on reward? And I would say there's a motivation based on at least two things so far. One is, yours is, this is present tense, yours is the kingdom of God now. You, you have come into the sway of God and his rule is protecting you and providing for you and drawing near to you. This is not just a future reality. In the presence of Jesus is the kingdom of God. And by his spirit now, after the cross, when Jesus has gone back to heaven, he comes near to us and he rules our life now. Now, but that now is often a now of hunger, a now of, of poverty, a now of, of weeping, and therefore our present experience is not the end point or sum of what Jesus promises us. There is the now of the kingdom, but there is the coming. Behold, your reward is great in heaven. So this now is replaced with a future. This now is replaced with a future, and that future is in heaven. And what we find there is immeasurably great reward, which is, in the end, God himself. As Psalm sixteen eleven says, in your presence, your presence is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. So the great reward of heaven 
are many things, many wonderful things, a new body and no more tears and restored relationships, but ultimately the great reward is God himself. So yes, there is a a motivational way of arguing here that offers us a glorious experience of God's reign in our lives in the present and an even greater consummation of that experience in heaven. And then we keep going to see how he works with warnings. Woe to you who are rich, for you have received now your consolation. So there's an argument that what you get if you want to live for riches is riches. They become your consolation. You have your reward now. That's what you get. But there's more coming, worse coming. Woe to you who are full now. You shall be hungry. So just like there's a present consolation with the inadequacy of riches now that never satisfy the soul, so there is a future threat of, of reversal. You got fullness now. That's going to be replaced in the, in the future, and that future would be the opposite of heaven, namely hell, with hunger. Woe to you who laugh now. That laughter is going to be replaced with mourning and weeping in the future. Woe to you when people speak well of you. Their fathers did to the false prophets. You put yourself in the position of a false prophet, and they have nothing to expect but mourning and weeping and hunger in the age to come. So my answer is yes. This text is structured in such a way that Jesus gives incentives for us to live on account of the Son of Man as his disciples by being motivated by the present experience of God's fellowship and protection and provision and kingly guidance of us and by the future a promise of reward that is so great it outweighs all the hatred and reviling of this life. And he motivates us negatively by saying, you can have a lot of riches in this life and they are the consolation that you get now. And that will all be reversed later when mourning and weeping and hunger are your portion forever. Now, here's the question. Does that way of motivating people produce love? I'm going to say yes, and I'm going to show you four passages quickly. Number one, I'll come back to the immediate context, but I'm going to jump over to 2 Corinthians 8. Paul says, we want you to know, brothers, about the grace that was given among the churches of Macedonia. Well, what happened when, when they experienced the grace of God and, and became disciples of Jesus? Because in a severe test of affliction, so first thing that happened was affliction increased. Their abundance of joy, second thing that happened was, in spite of this affliction, this grace of forgiveness and promise produced overflowing joy. And their extreme poverty, so the fourth thing that happened is that their poverty did not go away have overflowed. So here's the, here's the subject of this verb. Their abundance of joy overflowed 
in a wealth of generosity, and that is love. What this um, joy produced was love. It overflowed in love. So I come back and I say, when, when Jesus says, rejoice in that day and leap for joy, and he grounds it in the great reward that's coming in heaven, we know from 2 Corinthians 8 that in the mind of the Holy Spirit and the apostles and Jesus, this kind of joy produces love. It makes us feel deeply, deeply satisfied in God so that we can join God in living the way that the Son of Man lived and highlighting the Son of Man. So that's my first argument. Yes, this kind of motivation, rightly understood, produces joy, which produces love. Here's my second observation from just a few verses later in Luke. If you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. But love your enemies, love your enemies, and do good, and lend, expecting nothing in return (laughs) from man. And your reward will be great and you will be sons of the Most High. This is an argument and an incentive to love. In the mind of Jesus, being motivated by a great reward beyond this life in heaven is not contrary to love. I'll come back in a minute and say why, but let's just see the way he talks. His third observation. Luke 14, 12 to 14, Jesus said also, to the man who had invited him, when you give a dinner or a banquet, don't invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or your rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return. Sounds a lot like 635. Don't lend in order to get back the same. Even sinners do that. Even sinners invite people for dinner hoping to get invited back. Lest they invite you and you are repaid. But when you give a feast. Invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind. You'll be blessed. It's blessed to give because they cannot repay you in this life for you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. That is the great reward. Same as we saw in chapter 6. And it motivates loving banquets sacrificial banquets where we don't just try to look out for ourselves and invite good friends and rich neighbors in order to put our name in, in the lights and get invited back. We, we invite those who, who can't give us anything. We just want to give to them because it's blessed to give now with a wonderful conscience and it's going to be blessed later because we will be repaid anything you lose to love the needy you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. So yes, the promise of reward produces joy, which produces love. One last text, Hebrews 11. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God. My goodness, choosing mistreatment 
to serve the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of this world of sin. He considered reproach, so mistreatment, reproach of the Christ serving the Messiah, greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt. How could he do that? Because, because he was looking to the reward. When Moses contemplated the magnitude of the reward of serving the people of God, enduring the reproaches of Christ, he compared the treasures of Egypt to that and said, nothing, nothing. It's worth nothing. You can't read that. (laughs) Sorry. Nothing. It's worth nothing compared to this reward. And thus he was freed up to choose the loving path of mistreatment in the service of the people of God. So I come back and I say, yes, yes, yes. The way Jesus argued here, you get reward now, you get reward later, you get warning now that that's all there is, and you get warning that pointing and weeping are coming, and that whole way of arguing is a way of producing an inexplicable leaping for joy and great rejoicing that unleashes a kind of love that the world cannot explain. 